As I was um, preparing for today, one of the things that I immediately realized as I was writing my open illus- opening illustration, I often just use something to kind of present a problem and solution uh, when I'm preaching, um, but I realized I'm going to date myself here really quickly. Um, back in the day, we had these things called photo albums. Now, anybody who is like, what, 25 and under, you might have never have seen a photo album, so maybe I should explain it to you. Uh, a photo album, it, it used to be that when you took a picture, you had to go and take a, a film out of a camera, take it to a store, wait about a week and get it developed, and then they would give you pictures back, and then you'd put the pictures into an album. Now, this is long before the days where people were scrapbooking and all that kind of fancy stuff. You just put the pictures in. And I, I loved going into my... My dad had a, an office, and in his office, there were various places... Where there, were, there were various photo albums. And it, it, it went through various time periods. And, and in those moments... Well, you, you also didn't take lots of photos. You took a photo when the moment was right because you didn't want to waste pictures because you had to get them printed and, you know, like there was a whole process, right? It wasn't like today where you can take 10 bursts of photos all at once and then delete them from your phone. So, So my dad would take these moments, these pictures, and he would put them into the photo album and then... As, as a child, what I loved to do is I'd love to go sit in his office and I'd open up the photo album and I'd love to look at the pictures. And there, there are lots of very interesting things that happen when you look at pictures of a family. You notice how, well, Dad had a funny mustache at this point and he has less hair now than he did then. And, and, and all these changes have gone on. The, the funny sweaters that Grandma knit for you and that you all had to wear together and the ways that you just looked a little bit different. You looked the style of the time. And it reminds you of all these things of days gone by. One of the things that uh, you can be tempted to do in a, uh, looking at a photo album is start to be disgruntled on those pages where you don't show up. You can look and go, well, where was I? What happened? Why is there no picture of me? And suddenly we can take our family albums and make it as though it's all about us and it's centering around us. As much as we love our families and we love the memories, there's something about how it just is giving us a sense of identity. It's giving us a story. It's giving us meaning. It's giving us purpose. And we can find that even in looking at a photo album, what we find is that it's all about us. And yet, one of the great things about looking at photo albums is that there are pictures from before I was born. Uh, this week, I was discovering, a, I, I discovered a photo of my, of my grandmother who would have been 113 this week, and she had been born so, so, so long ago, and yet there she was, and it gave me a sense that my story is far bigger than all the things that I could ever recall, that there's a, a history, there's a lineage, there's a heritage that has come down to me, and even before there were photos, there's a story that has gone on. When the Apostle Paul writes and he says, I decided to know among you one, while I was among you one thing, 
that he wanted to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. What Paul was not saying is that he was ignorant about mathematics or that he didn't know how to make tents or to make a living or have basic economic practices, but that Jesus Christ became this central focus to everything. Jesus Christ and him crucified, which is what we call the gospel, the good news, this announcement, this proclamation that God has come into the world to save sinners that he's come to redeem and rescue us from the brokenness of this world. And so this morning, really what I want to do is I, I want to do something a little bit different because we have this tendency when, well, next week I'll talk about why we should read through the Bible, and I want to encourage us in that. But even before you go out and pick up a, a plan to read through the Scriptures, what I want us to do this morning is think about when I read the Bible What am I looking for? What's the whole point of the Bible? If I come to the Bible and I think that this is the story about me, I'm going to find that it's very aggravating. But if I discover that the story of the Bible, the true history of God's work, actually centers not on me, then I need to understand what's the point of the Bible. So this morning, I really, I just want to, it's more or less, thinking about how do we read the Bible. We'd call this in technical terms hermeneutics. How do we read the Bible so that we get the most out of the Bible? Because guaranteed, some of you are going to pick up a Bible reading plan, and if you start at Genesis and go all the way through to Revelation, you're going to get to these points in Leviticus and Numbers where your Bible reading plan is going to go... You laugh because it's happened if you get past the second half of Exodus, right? So what is it when we're reading the Bible? What is this method of reading that we need to be learning? I want us to know one thing, and I want to ask just three questions that are going to help us to think about how we read the Bible. So when we think about the Bible, is it about you or is it about Jesus? When I was growing up, the Bible was a bunch of disconnected stories, That's how I was taught it, at least. I was taught that there's creation, and then there's these stories about Noah and the flood, and then we jump to Abraham, and then there's Abraham's kids, and and then there's these stories about all sorts of exemplary people and bad people, and I, I... didn't really know how the Bible all fit together. I could tell you all sorts of facts and stories about the Bible, but I was given this this, uh, acrostic, I guess you would, in terms of, not an acrostic, I don't even know what to call it, Uh, just this description of what is the Bible, B-I-B-L-E. You've probably heard me say this before, but I was told that the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. What? B-I-B-L-E, right? It sounds really good, but it made the emphasis on another world, that I was getting ready to leave this world. And as a result of that, then what I needed to do was I needed to prepare for that other world. It seemed otherworldly in a sense that was disconnected from me. And so as a result of that, I read the Bible as though it was all about me. And the more I read the Bible as though it was all about me, I was always trying to figure out how could I insert myself into the story? Well, if I'm to be like Abraham, I'm to have faith, and I'm to get up and leave the land that God has promised to me? 
What about these food laws in Leviticus and the sacrificial system? And if I continue to read the story, there's just stories of warfare that just didn't compute. How do I fit myself into these stories? But as I grew in my understanding of the Bible and as I understood it more, there was one man specifically that really helped me. He's now gone to be with the Lord, a man by the name of Tim Keller, a pastor. He was a pastor in Manhattan for many, many years. And Tim Keller has this wonderful video that you can find online that is all describing about how it is that it's not, the Bible is not all about you. That if we center ourselves In the middle of the Bible, what we will discover is that we don't know the very thing that the Bible is about because we've made it all about us. If we make it all about us, which is all the things that this world is teaching us to do, to make ourselves the center of attention, then we're going to end up being very confused. But I don't need more help thinking about myself as being the center of all things. And probably you don't either. You see, because the Bible is not primarily a story about you. You're not the main character. In fact, we're just here for a sliver of time on planet Earth, which means that there's something far greater and far more grand that God is doing. And so when when I began to discover that the Bible is not about me, it actually opened up a greater understanding and appreciation that as I'm reading the scriptures, what I'm discovering is not something that's going to just be helpful for me right now, but something that opens my eyes and gives me wonder and awe. And if there's anything that evangelicals have really lost In the last 80 years, it's a sense of wonder and awe and appreciation. And what we need is we need a sense of grandeur, something greater. We need an overarching story that that in a world that is full of disconnected pieces that makes no sense and we don't know how things fit together, what we need is this overarching story. And so Tim Keller, he puts it this way, that when we read the Bible, what we see is Jesus from beginning to end. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that was spilt not for, not for our guilt but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Adam or Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void not knowing where he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was offered up on the mountain by his father and was truly sacrificed for us all, while God said, Now I know you love me because you did not withhold your one and only son who you love for me. Now we at the foot of the cross know that God loves us because you did not withhold your one and only son. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled with the angel and took the blow of justice we deserve so that like Jacob, only the wounds of grace could heal us and wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who's at the right hand of the king and forgives those who have betrayed him and sold him and yet uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between God and the people and mediates a new and better covenant for us. 
Jesus is the true and better Job, who truly is the innocent sufferer who intercedes for his friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone or a sword to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just lose an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate palace, and who didn't risk his life, but gave his life, and said, not just, if I perish, I perish, but he actually perished and saved our lives. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we can be brought in. He's the true Passover lamb, the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice. So, do you need any more evidence that the Bible is not about you? You see, when we begin with this understanding that the Bible is not all about you, it frees you from this urgent demand that you have to figure out something to apply to your life right now, but instead opens your eyes to wonder. It it opens your eyes to see something far greater, something far bigger, something far more glorious than you. And so, the Bible... Is it about you or is it about Jesus? The second thing is, the Bible, is it about your performance or his? Since basic instructions before leaving earth is the model that most, of, most evangelicals have been taught and raised with, then what happens is that when you read the Bible, you look at every character and you're trying to insert yourself into that character. The problem with that is, is that every single character of the Bible, except one, is flawed. Deeply flawed. Profoundly flawed. Because Cain kills his brother Abel. Noah As much as he goes into the ark and he saves his family and it looks like saves the world, he is also the man who comes out of the ark and gets drunk and exposes himself to his family. We can think of Jacob, this one who is a a promised child and yet his name very much means deceiver, who deceives his very own brother. As though he wrestles with the angel, he still is a coward even when he goes to face his brother. And Moses, as much as he comes from fame and fortune and is a great leader and ought to be considered a great example of a leader, he's also a man who loses his temper at various points, killing an Egyptian and striking the rock when he was told not to. Or we could think of David the great psalmist, the great shepherd, the greatest king of Israel in its history, who is known as a murderer and an adulterer. Or we could think of others like the apostle Peter, someone who is perceived to be so great and bold for the faith, and yet his brashness got him into trouble over and over and over again, and who the apostle Paul said that he was not living in step with the gospel and had to be confronted. Or we could talk about Paul, who so many Christians love to spend time reading his letters, forgetting that he was, a, he was behind a mass murder conspiracy. 
So if we look for examples in the Bible and we want to put ourselves in the characters of the Bible, what we're going to find is that the characters of the Bible are not examples to follow all the time. In fact, the examples that they offer are examples of being both sinners and saints, of being profoundly flawed and weak and broken and in need of redemption. But there's a better story. And the thing that the Apostle Paul says, I wanted to know one thing, is that when you read the Bible with the Jesus lenses and you look for Jesus all across the Scriptures, what you discover is that when the Bible opens and the problem begins that Adam fails the test, that God promises another son, a son who will succeed where that first son failed. And that son who failed, that Adam who failed, there is a a son that is promised to Eve who will come and who will crush the head of the serpent. And that one who is promised to come, he is the one who comes And as the promise is given then to Abraham, it's a promise of a blessing that's going to come to all the world. That's going to go as far as the curse is found, as Isaac Watts says. That in Abraham, all the world would be blessed. It means that in cases like Jacob, who marries a woman that he thought was the beautiful woman that he was hoping for, only to discover that she is the ugly sister what he finds is that God does not forget his promise when the deceiver is deceived. Or Joseph, who reminds us that in the midst of incredible sorrow and suffering, that God's promise to bring about deliverance will not mean that our suffering is ever wasted, but that God works together for good for those who love him and are recalled according to his purpose. That Moses, who is not about fame and fortune, but is about the reminder that God is bringing a people out of slavery into deliverance. And that Joshua, as much as Joshua is the one who is going to face the giants in the land, it's not about you facing your giants just like Joshua did and just like David had to face Goliath, but rather that there is one who fights for you, that even before you go into battle, the battle has been won. The battle has been fought. The victory is accomplished. That it might not look like the battle happens the way that you think it ought to happen. But that God is pleased to do something great. Because the promise of the Bible is that God's deliverance and rescue will never be thwarted. That though there is a great evil in this world, the promise is that in the end, God wins. There is a victory. And God's victory doesn't look like what you and I typically want victory to look like. It often looks like God showing up in the, in the impossible times and moments. It's him giving a child of promise to people who are far too old to have children. And it's a virgin conceiving and bearing a son. You see, when we see that what God does is he keeps his promise and he protects his people, when he accomplishes his purposes, 
suddenly we discover that the Bible is not primarily a story about my performance. And that's a good thing. Because if it's not primarily about my performance, but it's about one who came and fulfilled the law and does all righteousness and yet tastes death and is suffering, then what we find is that the rescuer of the world who faces great injustice is my hope. The one who did no evil faces all evil so that you and I might face and receive his goodness. You see, we have one who has come, who has fulfilled the law perfectly, and he tells us that you and I are far more sinful than we ever realized, but far more loved than we could have ever imagined. The Bible is a a book about the reality of how desperately wicked our hearts can be, and yet how gracious a God can be. And so when we consider reading the Bible, it's not about us just thinking about, well, what tip can I get to become a better person, but being in awe of the one who has done all righteousness for me. So the Bible is not about us. It's about Jesus. It's not about our performance. It's about his. Then the last question I have is, is the Bible to help me to make me a better person or to be with a holy God? This is all going to fit together here in just a moment. You see, if, if I come to the Bible and I think that I've got to figure out which rules that I've got to obey, then it's going to put a lot of pressure on me. I, re- I remember reading Leviticus and going, okay, so you're supposed to get yeast out of your house around Passover. How does this apply to me? Well, if God cares about yeast, then he must care about me. Sounds like a good hermeneutic, doesn't it? But then what do I do about not touching dead animals or not eating pigs or about all these unclean rules? And if someone who is a skin disease touches me, am I unclean? How does this apply to me? This doesn't apply. And so suddenly we write off four-fifths of the Bible, Because what we discover is that there are all these laws and rules and we have no sense, no framework to know how on earth do these things fit together. And we can read the Bible then as though it's somehow some ancient book that is irrelevant to me and it doesn't make any sense. So let's just start at chapter 1 of Matthew where it all begins to at least open up and make some sense for me. That Old Testament stuff, we can be finished with it and we can just move on. But the problem is that if, if the focus is on me and I want to become a better person, then I've got to figure out which rules apply to me and which ones don't apply to me and why do these rules apply to me and why do those rules don't apply to me and the pressure is on. But then when you come to sections of Scripture like the Psalms, what you discover are these, these soaring longings That there's a blessed man who's planted by streams of water, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. That he follows the law of the Lord. And the law of the Lord is good. It revives the soul. It gives delight. It makes wise the simple. That that the Bible then becomes this word of uh, something that I'm longing for. That the law is good. 
that I delight in it? How can it be that I delight in the very things that are so confusing to me? Until I discover that all throughout the Psalms and actually all throughout the Scripture, there is this sense that what the soul longs for is to be with a holy God. But what separates us from a holy God is our sin. Our sin has made a barrier, Isaiah says, between us and a holy God. And as a result of that, the only thing that I can find in the law is that it condemns me over and over and over. That I can't ever keep the rules enough. That sure, I could try to keep the Ten Commandments, but when you get to the last one, do not covet, it seizes you, it grips you, as the Apostle Paul would describe his own experience, which drove him to come to faith in Christ. That you can't ever cease this problem, because what it does is it exposes in my heart there is always some longing that is disordered. But yet when I come to God and I discover who God is in Jesus and all that he has done for me, what I find is this, that I can say with the psalmist, as a deer pants for streams of living waters, so my soul longs for you, O God. As Psalm 42 says, or Psalm 63 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Or we could say with Psalm 84, that one thing that is the longing, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One thing I ask, one thing I seek, to, that I could dwell in your courts. Better is one day than a thousand elsewhere. You see, when I discover that the Bible then has this emphasis on longing, that the longing is not merely to be better or try harder, but to love deeper. You know what that actually does? Here's the irony. You don't become a better person by merely trying harder. You become a better person actually by loving deeper. By being captured by wonder. The soul that is amazed and enthralled is the soul that is transformed because it sees glory. And as Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're changed from one degree of glory to another. It's not mere facts. It's not mere information that changes us. It is wonder. It's glory. And the goal of reading our Bible is not to get to be better people, the goal ought to be that we would know God and love God and desire God because by knowing that, that's what changes you. That's why when you start off with resolutions at the beginning of a year, by the second week of January, you're already falling off the track because rules and, and, and resolutions don't change you. Our willpower is too weak unless you're changed by glory. Unless you're, unless you're seeing glory in all of its splendor and majesty, if the imagination is captured with wonder, that's how you're changed. Yes, it does require trying. I'm not going to say that there's no trying involved, but it means that what we're trying for is wonder, glory. 
What we're aiming for, what we're longing to see is glory. And suddenly the Bible then makes more sense. Because the Bible is not primarily about the people to follow and character examples that I need to emulate and rules that I need to figure out to obey, but a God who comes near to me so that I might know how to draw near to him. That he comes and he gives all sorts of details in Exodus about how he is going to dwell with his people in a tabernacle. And he gives all these regulations and laws in Leviticus so that you might know that the very point of Leviticus, it starts off with, and God spoke to Moses from the tent of meeting, and by the time you get to the end of Leviticus and you open up the book of Numbers, it says, and God spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. What has happened in the book of Leviticus is not merely some dictation of just laws and rules for the sake of you being a better person, but how God draws near to people. So that by the time that you get through the tabernacle and into the promised land and to the temple, you have God dwelling with his people so that John can say in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But Jesus has gone into heaven, which means that the very presence of God, which is now among us, which dwells among us, is the very spirit of God who God promises that in every believer who trusts in Jesus Christ, he puts that spirit so that you are the temple of the living God. You see, when when we understand that the, the point of the Bible is that it's not about me, it's to discover the glory of God who has worked for my good by sending his own son to die a sinner's death, to redeem me so that I might have my eyes open to wonder and glory, to adore and love him then is it no wonder that Paul can say, I desire to know one thing while I was among you, Jesus Christ and him crucified? Because what this does is it frees you from the pressure of having to find your picture on every single page of the storybook or the picture book. And it's okay when you're not in the picture. Because the one who truly matters, who gives you identity, who gives you purpose, who gives you focus, who redeems your life from all of the hardships and difficulties, who promises a future and promises that not one ounce of your suffering will ever be wasted, this God is on every single page showing you that he has come for you, that he loves you. So when you go to pick up a Bible reading plan, whether it's just reading small portions, whether it's reading every day a a larger section, whether it's just reading through the New Testament and Psalms or reading the whole Bible, could I encourage you that this, this is not just some mere book, but it is the, the story. It is the story of God who so dearly loves you that he wants you to know one thing. And that one thing will change your life when you seek glory. It is the God of glory who comes to show himself to you. So let's pray. God, we confess 
We confess that we so often read the Bible as though it's all about us. And then we miss the glory and the wonder and the majesty. To be captured by wonder, to be captured by glory, Lord, would you do that again in us? Where there are so many sorrows and difficulties and hardships, Lord, we want our hearts to be enthralled again. Revive us again. Let us see what glory looks like so that we could taste and see that you are good. Thank you for your incredible patience with us. That when we make everything about us, that doesn't stop you from working for our good and loving us. Would you show us more of your glory that we would come and adore you, Jesus, the Lord. It's why we pray in your name. It's why we come to you. It's why we gather. Amen.